I remember talking to Parker, our, our CEO, Robbie, like maybe once or twice in your career, a giant like tsunami surf wave will come crashing towards you. You're the one holding the surfboard. You get to decide, like, are you going to jump on or not? And I like, by the end of the conversation, I had already bought a plane ticket to Scottsdale. I was like so fired up. I was ready to run through a wall. Zenefits is one of the most infamous hypergrowth stories in SaaS history. From 2013 to 2016, they grew to over 70 million in revenue and a $4 billion valuation. But their hypergrowth came at a cost. They came up against insurance compliance issues that resulted in millions of dollars of fines, a leadership shakeup, and mass layoffs in 2017. Today's guest, Robbie Allen, was there for all of it. Welcome to Grow and Tell, the show where revenue leaders tell the growth stories behind successful companies. I'm your host, Alex Krakoff. Robbie Allen joined Zenefits as an SDR in 2014. Three months later, he was promoted to manager of sales development, where he hired and trained the company's first 20 SDRs. A year later, he was promoted to director of sales development, where he opened a satellite office in Phoenix and scaled the team to 25 managers and 250 reps, growing revenue from 5 million to 70 million along the way. After stints leading sales development at Flexport and Saster, Robbie rejoined many of his former Zenefits colleagues at AgentSync in 2020 as their VP of sales before being promoted to CRO. Robbie and I had a really fun chat where we talked about sales lessons from Zenefits, how he ended up at AgentSync, the differences between being a CRO and a VP of sales, and what it was like working behind the scenes with Jason Lemkin at Saster. Hope you enjoy. I'd love to start today's conversation with this growth story. And maybe a good place to start is like, how were you so successful as an SDR in the early days as Zenefits? And then how did you sort of transition into management so quickly? It's a fun story to think back on. And I think just a different time in tech altogether. I don't know if we'll see like another story like this one again, certainly at least anytime soon, because I think there were lessons that were learned along the way. But to kind of tell the story, it was my second SDR gig, first one out of college. And then I worked for a company that folded up shop that, you know, I was performing well at, found out, hey, we're not going to be doing this thing anymore. I'm like, okay. So I took a gig at Zenefits as an SDR and had been doing, you know, SDR and kind of like SMB AE sales for about a year and a half. So I knew what I was doing. And so a bit of a step back to take two steps forward. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of like advice in Silicon Valley that shared about like how to pick a company. And a lot of it, like to, to summarize kind of some of the things that I've learned over the years, it's like more about the name on the front of the jersey and like the growth of the company and the and the sort of like um, scale that you can experience during your time there and the opportunity to to grow. And Zenefits like had all those characteristics. To be honest, I didn't even know that at the time. I got lucky in that way. And I got to work with people that believed in me and work in an environment where I could really like show up, do something I knew how to do and perform at a high level. I remember probably like seven or eight months in when I'd sort of stood out as, you know, one of the higher performers on the team, we were making a decision to expand outside of just the SF Bay Area as we were like raised a couple rounds of funding and it was sort of like time to grow. And I got asked the question if I wanted to go open up an office in Scottsdale, Arizona, which I understand, Alex, you've got some experience with and we can touch on that one later. And I remember talking to Parker, our CEO, he's like, you know, Robbie, like, Maybe once or twice in your career, a giant like tsunami surf wave will come crashing towards you. You're the one holding the surfboard. You get to decide, like, are you going to jump on or not? And I like, by the end of the conversation, I had already bought a plane ticket to Scottsdale. I was like so fired up. I was ready to run through a wall. So that was kind of one of those, I don't know, Silicon Valley indoctrination moments for me. So I moved out there and, you know, over the course, like you said, of 
two years, we hired 250 SDRs and built a management layer of 25 managers and a couple directors. And, you know, I think candidly, like there were aspects of that model that worked really well up to a point. And then like at a certain point, we were cutting the size of the pie, like smaller for a larger group of people. And I think that there were a lot of lessons along the way that I'm happy to talk about. But looking back on it, it's almost like crazy to, to kind of like say those numbers out loud and think about how many interviews and how many like onboarding sessions we were conducting to bring that many people together to sort of like conduct this mission as a team in such a short, compressed period of time. It really felt like getting a kind of a startup MBA in a, you know, in a really compressed timeline. Yeah, Perker is just such an inspirational leader and the way he can just talk and fire people up. I've heard so many stories about Zenefits and the few times I've, I've been lucky enough to speak with him. It's just like, wow, it's like, okay, I aspire to be like him as a CEO and sort of that leadership ability and the ability to inspire people. It's just like, it's so amazing. I love that that tsunami story. That sounds like very much a Parker analogy. What did Outbound look like at the time? Like, I know Matt Epstein was sending a lot of emails out kind of from the marketing side of things, but was he managing SDRs too? And were you doing like a lot of personalized outreach or kind of how were you able to be so successful at Outbound? At the time that I joined, we were actually like all in, in, in entirely an inbound shop. So Matt is like a mad scientist of demand gen and marketing broadly. Like he's, you know, as a CMO, he's got a lot of skills. But at the time at Zenefits, like his core focus was really like demand generation, running campaigns, and it was incredibly effective at it. I've actually never seen anybody in my career since then as effective as Matt. And he's done it again, you know, now at Rippling. And, you know, I think at the time, Zenefits was really inbound driven in the early days. You know, at first it was kind of like YC referrals, and then it was like the next cut of like that network and then so on and so forth. It was around the time that we raised our Series B that it became clear that like moving from sort of like lower like SMB mid-market sort of up to upper mid-market and enterprise was just like an initiative that we wanted to take on as a business as we thought about total addressable market and customer lifetime value and all that. And that was where the outbound effort started. But they're just, you know, the, the same message of like, you know, free HR software wasn't really resonating with companies of sort of a certain size and it had to be more of like a value message. So that's where the outbound play came in and it worked. Like pretty much straight away, we were we were landing that message and converting, you know, a high number of opportunities per rep and were able to scale that, I think like pretty effectively all the way to like 100 SDRs over the course of a couple of years. We started to see diminishing returns around like 150 or so as kind of on that journey to 250. So it was the biggest outbound team I've ever experienced in my career and kind of quite a sight to behold just like behind the scenes of all the operations that have to take place to support and feed sort of like that many mouths in terms of like the scale that we were that we were reaching. Yeah, I'd love to like kind of go behind the scenes of how you were able to just hire that many humans. And I think it was under two years, you hired like 250 sales reps, 25 managers, like, were you just in interviews all day? Did you do training classes? Like, what did that like kind of program look like? Yeah, I mean, all the above. I think, you know, it was, um, it was very intentional when I moved out there that like the, the mission was to sort of grow a very large inside sales team and on a very compressed timeline. So I went there eyes wide open. It was one of those things where I'd never done that before. So I, it was hard to know exactly how it was going to go and what to expect. But, you know, if you kind of do the math on what does it take to hire 250 people? Well, you got to do you know, at least a couple thousand interviews. If you think about maybe a 20, 30% conversion rate of candidates and, you know, the phone screens and all that that go above it. So we had, you know, at the height of it, there were like dedicated days of the week at one point in time all day Tuesday and Thursday we're from 8am until 5pm were just like consecutive in person interviews. And we had a recruiting team that was like orchestrating like quite a bit of 
outbound sort of recruiting efforts. We were on campus at universities in Arizona recruiting people. We were moving people into the state for fairly like entry-level positions. I mean, it was a fully orchestrated, almost go-to-market motion on the recruiting side in and of itself. And then like as we kind of got folks onboarded, it was really we took sort of like a like a college kind of introduction type of approach where we actually had, I remember in the office, like a big stadium seating kind of like lecture hall format. And there were like, you know, maybe a hundred seats. And so there'd be people in there. We stood up an enablement program pretty quickly that really focused on those first couple of weeks. And, you know, I think the goal was to get people onto the phone as quickly as possible. You worked at Yelp. We actually modeled a lot of what we did on the Yelp program. Uh, and I understand that you went through that program yourself. Yeah, no, it sounds very similar. I mean, I think I showed up at Yelp with like 35 other people and I didn't even know what sales actually was, you know, and then you get put into like this training program and then, you know, day two, you're on the phones and you're just getting thrown into the fire. And then I think by the time I left Yelp a year later, only like seven or six of the people were still in the training class, right? It was such a churn and burn sort of program, but like you learned a lot very quickly. Uh, and it was, uh, I don't know, quite the experience. It gave me some street cred later on when I was at Lattice and I was like, I could talk to SDRs and be like, I used to do this too, uh, you know, even though I was sitting in the marketing seat then. I'm curious, how did you like deal with all this personal like growth on a personal level? Because it must have been pretty crazy for you to figure out, okay, how do I manage this many humans? How do I just very quickly go from a manager to a leader? Like, what was like that for you personally? It was hard. You know, I think it, it stretched me. And I was 25 years old in the middle of all this. Like, I was very young, very early in my career. There, there was a part of me that was like almost like projecting a sense of control and a sense of seniority that I didn't necessarily have. And I think it times maybe wasn't like looking back on it, maybe wasn't entirely genuine in the sense that like I was sort of like maybe less vulnerable than I probably could have been as it related to like, you know, the relationships I had with other managers and leaders. But myself and like a VP of sales out there were essentially the heads of that office. You know, I think it was one of those things where it was extreme in every way. And I got the chance to get a front row seat to, to sort of see what that felt like. And there were like more lessons than I could possibly even count. But it shaped me. And, it, and I think what it did was when I went and did kind of my next play at, after that at, at Flexport and, and, and a couple of other things since then, it didn't seem as extreme, I guess, the next time around. There's some value in that. And I think it also taught me about just sort of some of the things that some of the way we approached it in terms of the velocity, the speed, the aggressiveness. I also learned about sort of like, what are the warning signals that those aren't necessarily like working or like are going off course or whatever. And so I think, you know, tons of lessons and takeaways. Honestly, though, Alex, I look back on it and feel very fortunate that I was put in a position and had the trust from folks like Parker and, you know, Sam and Matt Epstein and others that they believed in me to do that. And, and, and we did do that. And I think the outcome wasn't necessarily the outcome that we were sort of initially driving towards, but I'm grateful for the lessons, the experience. And I think probably more than anything, like the relationships that I built along the way, many of those people who I hired and got a chance to work with are VPs, executives, founders that are doing really interesting things in the space today. So no, it's amazing how many talented people came out of Zenefits. I mean, so many of the great people who joined Lattice were ex-Zenefits and yeah, I don't know, all across Silicon Valley. And so I assume that's sort of how you ended up at Agency today, where you're the chief revenue officer, where, you know, Niji, I think, sort of built Agency out of his experience out of Zenefits. Can you talk a little bit about like how you ended up at, at Agency? 
yeah, the origin story is, I think, quite cool as far as like the opportunity, like like spotting a problem internally at the company that one works at for Niji's case, Sanofits, and then sort of like finding a market opportunity on the back of that. And, and you know, so kind of the one of the challenges that Sanofits ran into was as we were scaling really rapidly, ultimately, we were brokering insurance policies to small businesses and selling insurance to small to anybody is is a highly like sort of regulated practice, right? Where you have to be like appropriately credentialed and licensed to sell, you know, whatever, in our case, property and casualty insurance, uh, or sorry, health insurance. And the challenge is it takes a long time to get somebody licensed. And so, you know, Zenefits, as we work culturally, we're always trying to optimize and for speed and scale and get people like ramped as fast as possible. And sort of like through all of that and like a series of different things got fined, which actually fined by state insurance regulators millions of dollars. And what I've found out since then is that's actually a very regular practice that happens to insurance companies all the time. It just isn't as publicized as a high growth venture backed Silicon Valley company that kind of became a post child for that reckless behavior. Anyways, Niji was the one who at the time was running RevOps and kind of away from this problem, but got put in charge, got blessed with being put in charge to fixing it. And so he kind of got this basically this pool of resources to essentially like evaluate existing tools in the market or go like build one ourselves. And we decided to build it ourselves because most of the technology in the insurance space is pretty just like outdated and didn't really serve our needs. So he built basically an ISV app on the Salesforce platform that sort of validated that any sales rep working an opportunity was licensed in the appropriate state to sell that, that opportunity. And I think what Niji learned just through a series of conversations with state regulators and a series of conversations with other vendors in the space was that like no one was really doing doing this in a way that solved the problem for a huge industry, insurance in the U.S. So um, after getting benefits through that storm, he negotiated the IP of this kind of product he built and just started working on it nights and weekends. Interestingly, his wife and partner, Jen, is like a top 1% Salesforce engineer in the entire world, like world class. So they start hacking away at this thing and, and actually ended up bringing it to market back in 2018. And like, you know, it took a couple of years, but they brought on 10 customers somewhere to the tune of a million in revenue. And that was when I got the call actually from the COO, who I had a pretty close personal relationship with, and obviously knew Niji and knew Jen by proxy of Niji. And it was at the beginning of COVID, I remember. I was doing some consulting work at the time and was living in the marina in San Francisco. And then COVID hit. It was like before the market started ripping in COVID. And it was like, oh my God, this is awesome. It was a little bit of just like the moment of like, what is going to happen here? My wife was pregnant. And like the whole consulting thing that I was doing, which had been great to me, sort of came into question. I got a call from somebody who I had a very close personal relationship with saying, hey, we've scaled this thing to a million in ARR. We need a VP of sales. We just closed our seed round. Do you want to move to Denver and do this with us? So we got on a flight and we got out and visited them. And you know, I was like, it was personal, right? It was like I, this benefit story kind of came to an end for me, to me somewhat on account of this problem not being a solved problem in the space. And between that, between the fact that there was already enterprise traction so early on, and I was getting a chance to work with people that I knew and trusted on day one, and we didn't have to do the whole like, I don't know, the like sort of getting to know each other thing, we just could get into the work right away. All of that added up to me and my wife making the jump and moving out, you know, a couple months before having our first kid to Denver. And it's it's been an awesome ride. We've been doing it for four years now. That's an amazing story. And another great example of how you just got to get on a rocket ship whenever one sort of comes to you, no matter what the seat is. And, you know, it's, a, it's an amazing thing in, in startup world where these opportunities kind of arise out of nowhere, especially in moments of desperation like COVID, which was definitely a weird time back then. I'm curious, like, what did you do at the beginning? Because there must have been this transition from founder-led sales. I assume Niji or someone else was doing these, you know, it's called 100K deals. If there's 10, we get to a million. And so what did that look like? How did you sort of transition the business from founder-led sales to 
more of a proper sales model. It's something I'm dealing with now at Doc. So I'm really curious uh, what you guys are able to do. Super important question. I mean, sales was Niji's baby. Like he had a personal relationship with every customer. And frankly, like fewer things more powerful in the early days than the, the CEO and founder of the company selling directly to customers. Like there's just a level of like connection and attachment to the problem that customers, you know, want to buy from, I think. And there's a lot of magic in that. So I had to show him I could sell like day one. That I remember I was on sales calls like in my first couple of weeks and putting points on the board with like in another AE who, who, who started with me around the same time was like pretty much my, my singular priority for the first month, I would say. And kind of as soon as that happened, it was like, all right, you know, I, I earned his trust by showing him I could do what he did and then showing him I could do it better, not in the sense of like being a better salesperson or something, but instead like doing it in a more systematic and like scalable way. It was sort of like, okay, we need to, we need to go build a team. And, you know, I think looking back on it, Alex, like there's a lot of stuff I've gotten wrong, you know, here at Agent Sync and just throughout the, the course of my career, a series of lessons and, and things that you try to just do better the next time on. The one thing we got right here was the first five AEs we hired were really, really good. And they're, they're all still here. They're all still here and they're all still top performers on the team. And I think especially in the space we're in, which is more of like a specific vertical and longer sales cycles and enterprise, like that continuity of that talent like base has really carried us from a, from a revenue growth perspective over the years. And you know, those were like a couple of things that come to mind, I guess, early on in terms of that handoff from, from, from founder-led sales to being a VP of sales. And Niji's admitted to me more than once that like it was the hardest thing for him to let go. And so there was a level of like I really had to be bring him along for the journey in a lot of ways and sort of show him like the, the roadmap of what we were going to be doing to build and scale revenue and also make sure that like he still had a role in it, that like we still were setting up closing calls where he could come in and just like slam dunk the alley-oop, you know what I mean? Not to say he wasn't participating in a really productive way, but set him up to be big contributor still. And I think it was sort of a confluence of all those things, but it was still hard, you know, to make that handoff. I'd be curious what your experience has been like at Doc. Very similar. I mean, you know, it was like my baby. I have every relationship with the customer and trying to, you know, get the the deal done and sell. But I am terrible at the like stuff around the sale, right? Where it's like, you know, aligning to value and the timeline and, and I'm terrible at negotiating. I will give like every discount in the world, right? So like all of the stuff that like traditional sales is good at, I am bad at. I think I am really good at like sharing the vision and obviously demoing the product because I'm, I'm building the product. And so it's been honestly life changing since Joey has started working here as a head of sales, where he is such a good compliment to me in holding kind of the customer and the buyer to task and say, Hey, what's your timeline to get something done? Let's align to that. And it's led to so much more predictability in our sales process. Um, and then I can come in, as you said, and do the alley-oop and kind of be the senior relationship person and or even be like the product manager solutions engineer, which is a role that sort of fits my personality and I think what I'm, what I'm good at. That's awesome to hear. Yeah, and I think you, it, you know, you have to almost in a way like screen for a a match in your selling styles when you think about as a founder hiring your first head of sales. Is this somebody who I'm going to be able to sell with, who I can sort of like trust to hand this off to, and then trust them to sort of build a team that represents that motion that they're building. And that's like one of those things you can screen for that's like not necessarily obvious on day one, but if you if you feel it and you see it and you you understand that that is like what must be true. I don't know that that can kind of set you apart and help you grow a lot faster. 
Totally. And then the thing you said too about sort of being a player coach, right? When you started and actually closing deals yourself. I mean, that's the same thing with Joey and he's still in that world where it's like, dude, you got to come in and actually close revenue too. You can't just go hire a bunch of people right away. You got to come in, close revenue yourself. And then, you know, we'll get there. You will hire the team, but we got to kind of prove out the model and refine the pitch before we kind of go crazy on, on hiring and spend too much money. There is a trap of for a VP of sales of doing it for too long. I think it depends on the business. Like if you're, you know, if you're always going to be a shop that's, you know, a handful of reps selling higher ticket items, for example, you might want your VP of sales spending 50% of their time like in and running deals. For me, it was like had to aggressively hit that and then continue, but like sort of scale out of it in terms of focusing on recruiting for us to start building the team. So that is one of those things where it's a bit of an art, I think, to sort of like get in, prove you can do it and then like just as quickly kind of get out and hire others that can. I'm curious how like the product and pitch and ICP has sort of evolved because you've been at AgentSync for a few years now and I'm sure, you know, things have evolved since like the first couple early days. And how have you sort of thought about that puzzle over time? And can you kind of take us on, on that journey a little bit? Totally. It's, it's, it is constantly evolving. And I would say the past 12 months for our business have taught us that like, we're going through a huge transformation in terms of like moving up market to like true fortune 500 like enterprise customers. And those customers look really different than the ones who we were selling the Zenefit story to in the early days. We don't open each call. Like in the beginning, it was, have you heard of Zenefits? And, you know, and then I'd get into it, right? And let me tell you a story about my experience with compliance in the insurance industry. That's not how you open with Allstate. You know, it's not how you open with State Farm. And so we've gone through a pretty big evolution. And I think the thing that it's really opened my eyes to is it's not just product. It's not just sales. It's, it's an organizational evolution when you're actually going through, whether it's up market or into a new market, or you're just at the evolution of your ICP in terms of who you're recruiting and your alignment with your people team in terms of your post sales motion. And do we have the kind of group that can really bring value to this new cohort of customers? For us, one of the huge ones, Alex, that like a, a muscle we had to build was, was like a true implementation and services practice to like really help large scale customers implement like fairly complex software into like legacy kind of mainframe technology. And that was something that like in the early days, like that wasn't contemplated in the first year of us being here, like you had to go get the first one and then kind of learn, okay, like this is what it requires to get that first one. And it's like, you know, it's a series of milestones you're hitting and you eventually get better at surrounding yourself in the business with people that have been where you're going and can actually forecast and tell you this is the capability we're going to need as a company to like get to this new ICP. So it's constantly evolving. I kind of look at it as one of these things. It's like one of the most fun parts of the job is like working to refine your company around like who is the company with the highest probability to buy from us. And then who's the customer with the highest probability to be successful with us? Because those two things aren't always the same. And using that as like a way to align the organization around what we're doing and why we're doing it. I see that as like a big part of my role as as the CRO is like being in the field, taking feedback and bringing that back to the business and sort of articulating a position around like, this is who we think our ICP is, and this is the data to support it. So we're not perfect at it, not even great at it, but getting better at it just because it's something we've had to do quite a bit of. 
Yeah, I agree. It's the funnest part of of company building. I think like product market fit is a little bit of a misnomer because you you can have product market fit in certain segments, but then you're constantly trying to evolve and break into new segments. So you maybe have it in one area, but then you're evolving and pushing in another. And so, yeah, it's a super interesting dynamic, especially in the, the early days of building these companies. It's super well said. I think there's a lot of product clickbaity like types of ways of framing this type of thing. But it's fleeting in the sense that like, I think you, there's a tendency to overestimate the TAM of the initial product market fit that you might have as a company where that actually might be more narrow than you anticipate. And like, you can have an assumption that this broader TAM that we could conceivably serve will serve in the same way in terms of our go-to-market motion and, and, and sort of on down the line. But you learn actually that, you know, perhaps like there were some unique characteristics of those initial customers that made it a really great fit. And then you have to like make another evolution to take more of that TAM. And so it's a constant body of work that I don't think ever really stops. Very much agree. And I'd love to talk more about enterprise sales because as you've mentioned, AgentSync, uh, you know, is doing super big deals and trying to push into the Fortune 500. Like, can you talk a little bit about how you have made enterprise sales work at Agency Sync and sort of what's the secret to a good enterprise sales cycle? I think it's a, it's a confluence of things. You know, in the context of our business in insurance, one of the like key discoveries that we made early on was that our product handles like complexity really well in the sense of we basically help insurance companies manage their distribution channels. And those are basically a series of like relationships with insurance agents that are in the field selling their their products. And, and you know, we our products built on Salesforce as, as sort of, we deploy our product on Salesforce, at least one of our products. And it's built very well for the enterprise um, in terms of handling complex hierarchies and relationships and those sorts of things. And so what we actually identified is like as we moved up market and like the pain became more and more sharp, we actually found that there was a big value correlation with our product up market that like was sort of like less correlated down market in the sense that people were like already spending more up market to solve this problem and were like willing to actually spend even more than they already were spending to solve it in a more uniform platform way versus like a bunch of point solutions stitched together, if that makes sense. Whereas down market, it was often something where it was like, we'll take our chances and we're not really spending on this right now. So we kind of identified that early on and then it was all about, all right, so like this opportunity exists. Can we build the capability to go capture that opportunity? That was a slog, man. And it still is like, that's like, that's okay. Let's knock down sock two. Like, let's get a pre-sales engineering team stood up so that we can really move from kind of feature selling to value selling. Let's really build a sales process that's dialed in with, you know, med pick. And we kind of think of it as value selling and what are those pillars of value we drive. So we're not, you know, our, our solution isn't, we're not selling to executives in the sense that executives don't log in and use our product. It's typically two or three departments below them or levels below them, but we still need to get executive alignment. So how do we attach our value to executive priorities? So it's kind of like an organizational rally that, Hey, this makes sense. We want to move up market. And I, fortunately, you know, we have a couple, we have co-founders here at, at Agent Sync that I think we're, we're ready to jump on that opportunity and move up market and are like incredibly gifted at showing up up market. And so all those things together, were, and I think, and I think probably the, probably the most important of all that I, I should have mentioned first, Alex, I know I'm jumping around a bit here because we're, we're doing this as we speak. I've spent most of my day to day working on this exact question is how do you move up market and build an enterprise sales team? But most important of all is the people like, do we have the right team? Do we have the right mix of individuals who can show up on site with customers 
and sell value and bring customers in. And so we placed a bet pretty early on where our cycle times take sometimes more than a year to close, right? We made a pretty intentional bet early on that took some time to like pay off. And we're now seeing like repeatable success in the enterprise. But there was a moment where we jumped, right? And you kind of jump off the high dive and you're just like, oh goodness, like I'm floating. And there was a bit of that, you know, for a couple quarters of like, we're grinding out mid-stage opportunities. Are these going to close? Are we going to get these in? We had no basis for, yes, we would historically, but the indi- like the things that we believe to be true were happening and, and you know, sort of eventually paid off. So, you know, we're learning every day. I think that it's, a, I think the thing I would say to anybody who's thinking about it is it's an investment. It's a big investment that you have to make over a pretty long period of time to do it well and do it repeatedly. And the problem is if you half-ass that investment and you win business, you'll get stuck in an environment, you could get stuck in an environment with a really expensive customer problem where you've got a needy customer that has a set of expectations you don't have the capability to meet and it can create a huge drain on your organization. And so I would just say for anybody who's thinking about going up market, make sure that as an organization, you're aligned around what that means, not just for sales, but as an entire company. Yeah, I love that. It is such a company-wide investment from the sales team to the implementation team to the product team. Uh, and as you said, the worst thing you can do is close a million-dollar contract or whatever it is. And then you know, that turns later because they didn't like the product or they didn't do the implementation. Enterprise gets so scary because it's so lumpy, the revenue. And so you just are like looking at the forecast. You're just hoping that a few of these deals, you know, one or two deals is like make sure breaks your year or your quarter or whatever it is. But super fun to close. You describe you just, the last thought I have before I go to bed pretty much every night of the week. Yeah. Right there. <laughs> and I'm curious, like, how does the hiring profile change as you hire enterprise sellers? Because I know you've you've done a lot of that. You mentioned you kind of kind of hired five really successful ones. Would be really curious, like what you're looking for out of enterprise sales rep versus, you know, maybe your standard kind of commercial AE. Yeah, you know, I think we've been fortunate in that we hired mid-market and enterprise. They had enterprise titles, but really were performing kind of more mid-market deals in the early days. So let's say those first five AEs we hired were really more mid-market focused in the sense of the customers they were selling to. Those five we've really coached and developed and have, they've just been amazing to partner with and, and grow up with the organization and that they're now more like demonstrated true enterprise sellers. And that wasn't a skill set that they entered AgentSync with. That was something between the coaching, the enablement programs, just the, the shots on goal and the quarters under the belt over time developed. None of those folks were really like from industry for the most part in the sense that they weren't selling a solution like this to the market. Since then, we've gone and we've hired in folks that have done what we kind of do here for, in some cases, 15, 20, 30 years, you know, in our industry that have the cell phone numbers of a bunch of CIOs in our industry and and the, 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 the proverbial Rolodex. And I think what we've learned is that both can work in industry and out of industry, lots of seniority or grows internally. I think you just have to be intentional about like the moment that you're in as a company where early on, we didn't have the capabilities to support or handle, you know, the seasoned strategic rep. We wanted scrappy, go-getter, can build pipeline themselves types of AEs who can change with our emerging strategy on a dime and develop with the organization. And now that we've sort of built a more kind of standardized like playbook in the enterprise, we want to bring some people in who can kind of take that to the next level with those resources already kind of in place. So, I, you know, I think that those have been things that, you know, have worked for us. And, and to be honest, you know, I think the other thing, Alex, it's been a little bit of a secret sauce is that we've been in person in terms of in office 
really since the beginning, like through COVID, I remember like we were masked up in the office five days a week. And there was a moment there when I moved out to Denver and picked my whole life up and my pregnant wife and everything. And we were moved in and like there was a huge like breakout sort of like epidemic moment in Denver. And like we couldn't go to the office for a week. And I was like, did I just move to Denver to work remote for this company? Like this doesn't feel like the right thing. But we ended up back in the office. And I think that for the first three years, our entire sales team was based here in Denver. And we were in the office every day. And I think that that kept us nimble. You know, and I think that that's not every team. But for us, I don't think that we would have had the success that we've been able to have early on had we not had that in-person kind of dynamic with the team. Why do you think the in-person dynamic matters so much, especially, I guess, for the sales function? I think a couple things. I think learning by osmosis, especially early on, if you're brand new to an organization, you're trying to learn the culture. And ultimately, like as an AE, you're right, you're kind of a project manager in a lot of ways, especially in the enterprise. You're orchestrating resources internally to create the types of outcomes that the customer needs to feel comfortable committing, right? And said differently, you, you need to know how to get shit done inside of a business. And my experience here at Agent Sync and also throughout my career has been that personal relationships with people are, are sort of the foundation of like trust and, and trust is the foundation of, get, of getting shit done. And I've found that not just salespeople, but sort of our organization at large, like relationships are built, I think, in person in a lot of ways. And that's not a universal truth. You know, and it's not to say that everybody like has to operate their business that way. But for us, we feel like that's been a real accelerator for us. And so all of those sellers have relationships with our CEO and our CTO, and they had in-person interactions with them every day. And so they could pick up a cell phone and call them if there was a specific need for a customer. And it's not to say you can't accomplish that remotely, but for us, it just happened faster and more organically. And so we made that choice. And now today we have field sales reps that are remote that, you know, we, we see on more of like a quarterly cadence. But We've been pretty intentional about building our entire go-to-market team here in Denver. And our entire executive team is here. And, and like 90% of our leadership team is here. It's, it's worked for us. Yeah, it's super interesting because Doc is pretty, I guess we, we are very much a remote company, kind of by, not by choice at the beginning. Like one of the co-founders is in France. The other one was traveling. He was in Poland. He's actually back in SFE sitting in the other room right now, which has actually been really nice to, to have him here. But yeah, it's been super interesting building a very distributed remote company. We get access to incredible talent like Eric, uh, the producer who's quietly listening on uh, this call. Shout out, Eric. But it's hard. It can be hard to kind of get on a Zoom. It can feel really transactional, all your cultures in, in Slack. And so, yeah, it'll be really interesting. I think we're pretty committed and, and deep in the remote world, but it'll be interesting to see how we scale that, especially as we grow out the sales team. I don't know. We're still kind of figuring it out ourselves. But yeah, it's a, one of those interesting puzzles of, of company building that you got to deal with these days. I know you started, I, I believe, I think I heard this on another podcast. You started working with an executive coach at some point in your time at Agentsync. Can you talk a little bit about that journey and why you started working with a coach and how you've been able to kind of scale yourself within the organization? Yeah. You know, I think I started to feel for a moment like there was more that the organization needed from me than, than I sort of necessarily felt at a moment in time at Agents like that I had the capability to deliver. And I think the other thing is like it's a lonely role. I don't have a, like I report to the CEO. We talk mostly about the business, not about my personal development. And that's not like a knock on Agent Sync or Niji or anything. It was, you know, like he's been an amazing leader and manager and everything for me. But it's more like, of course, we're talking about the business and like problems that we have to solve. And so the executive coach was a big unlock for me because it gave me this outlet to just be like really vulnerable and really transparent about the problems I needed to solve. And frankly, a lot of the feelings 
that I was having that I didn't really have an outlet for otherwise. I didn't like go to therapy or like necessarily have like friends and, and family and things in my life where I could express some of those things. But uh, I kept a lot of that. Like I carried a lot of that, you know, and I think that the executive coach was a big unlock because he gave me this forum to to sort of like name and define the things that I was feeling and like needed to get done and then like visualize a path to to becoming that that future. And we met every week for a couple, you know, for now two years. And it's just created this compounding effect where my ability to get things done has just amped up to another level where we just boil it down to like, what is the most important thing that needs to be done in any like week or given period of time? And then holds me accountable to, to making that happen. And I think it's also sort of helped me do a little bit of self-discovery to learn about myself. So I think for anybody who, who is on the fence or thinking about doing that, I'd, I'd certainly encourage um, having somebody kind of in your, in your world. It doesn't have to be an executive coach. It could be a mentor relationship. It could be therapy in some cases. It could be any, any number of different things. But for me, that's been, yeah, it's been a really huge unlock and something I feel really grateful for and fortunate to have experienced. Yeah, I actually did the same thing at Lattice. I think we got to a certain point at Lattice where that kind of, as you said, I was the best marketer at Lattice and I had, you know, I still needed to learn. I was young in my career and, and all this stuff. And I eventually started working with Francois, who was like a CMO coach. And it was so incredibly helpful, you know, because I needed someone to like, push me and get me to think about marketing better and also teach me how I need to interact with other executives and the board and all these things that I had no experience, you know, doing before. And it was just like a huge unlock and like professionalizing myself and sort of moving the way I think of it from like a manager to a true leader within, within the company. So yeah, I don't know. I'm a big, big fan of, of executive coaches. You move from like a VP of sales to a CRO and now you're the CRO at some point in your time at AgentSync. What's the difference? Is it just a title change in our promotion? Do you think like your roles and responsibilities really shifted as you move from VP of sales to CRO? Like, how do you think about kind of that transition? Totally different roles like, would be like the, the punchline. At first, like when my title changed, I would say that I was actually still like behaving like a VP of sales for quite a while where my orientation of the team that was my first team was the sales team where I was rotated towards problem solving for the sort of on behalf of the sales team, unblocking things on behalf of the sales team, creating outcomes on behalf of the sales team. The work that I've done and I need to, that I continue to do is, is making the executive team, the leadership team, your first team. And I think that was kind of the big like mindset shifts that I've had to go through as, as, as a CRO. Um, and the roles expanded, like I oversee customer success and revenue operations and part, you know, channel partnerships and, and some other teams that weren't sort of like originally a part of the scope of my, of my role. But it's really, for me, the biggest difference has been making that executive team the first team. And I think there's, there's a lot written about this, but it's really like a demonstrated behavior of like partnering cross-functionally with the other leaders in the business to like build a plan and, and, and hold the team accountable for that plan and communicate and do all that as your number one priority. And I think that like, it always felt a little scary, like letting the hand off, off the wheel, so to speak, of like driving sales. But I'm, I'm fortunate that we have an amazing VP of sales, Ryan Ward, who's, who's, who's done an awesome job, like basically taking it to the next level. So I'm still working on, on how to do that, but that's been the, the big difference in the, the roles for me. I'd love to end today's conversation switching gears a little bit and talking about uh, working at Saster because I think you worked at Saster before AgentSync and I'm a huge fan of Saster. I mean, it had such a positive impact on my career. And I think we all have listened to, you know, the godfather of SAS, Jason Lemkin's blog posts and stuff. And I've learned so much from him. Like, what was it like working for Jason and what did you learn from Jason? 
Yeah. I mean, I think you said it, right? Like godfather of SaaS. I learned a ton working from Jason and I am so grateful for the time that I spent there. You know, candidly, the role before when I before I worked at Saster was was a relatively short stint as a as a head of sales at an early stage startup that just didn't work out. And my confidence was like a little was a little rattled from that. And I came on board at Saster in sort of like a consulting capacity, really as like an AE selling. I got my mojo back in a big way there. That was kind of the step I needed to make before taking this jump at, at Agent Sync. And I'll be forever grateful, you know, for the opportunity. I think I learned a ton of stuff from Jason. He's an incredibly gifted salesperson, but you would you'd sort of like never know without like actually observing it because it isn't like his background per se. I think the other thing I really learned about Saster is just the power of brand. It's a small team. Like people are often surprised to hear there's like a dozen people that work at Saster because like the brand and the um, the voice that Saster like puts into the market is, you know, you can hear it. And I think there was just so much investment made in the brand and the consistency of the value created for the community over like a decade plus. That just has this amazing flywheel network effect. And so the events, you know, really were kind of the driver of the business from like a revenue perspective. But it was just amazing to me how you could pick up the phone and somebody would know, you know, oh, Saster. Yeah, no doubt. Like, let's talk. And customers like you guys at Lattice, when you're the VP of marketing there, was but that was sort of our target buyer, right? And you know, it was funny. I've worked at a bunch of startups, but no startup that I'd ever worked at has had a better brand or a more recognized brand than Saster. And that's like, that's something that Jason has sort of been in the background working on for a long, long time. And it, it makes it easier to be successful, you know, in that kind of an environment. So I think that was like one of the big lessons, but yeah, just super, super grateful for the time spent there. Yeah, he's amazing. And I think, you know, it's it's cool to hear that he's just as good at sales as he is at marketing because I, you know, all the marketing stuff you just see and the volume and the the quality of the content that he puts out is just so spot on. And just like there's so many blog posts or just tweets or whatever that I feel like speak to like your inner soul of something you're dealing with as part of building a SaaS company. You're like, how did you just read my mind, Jason? It's, it's really cool to hear that it kind of lives up to that behind the scenes. Definitely some deep cuts from Jason. And he's walked the mile, right, in these shoes as far as being a founder and sort of being in the trenches and, you know, has has gone out of his way to share a lot of those stories. So they're doing awesome work over there at at Saster. And I think it's, it's also opened my eyes to the fact that I think that, like, there's just a need for more communities like that across industries. Like, it's very SaaS focused, of course, but, you know, now working kind of more in the insurance industry, there's like a notable absence of like that kind of a community, even though the like demand for it exists. And so I'm, I'm pretty bullish on, you know, like micro communities and like the events that sort of like drive those communities and, and everything like that. Um, Saster being like a great poster child for it. Well, thank you so much for for the conversation today, Robbie. If people want to follow up, ask questions, or maybe buy insurance software, where can they find you? Yeah, if you need to license your insurance agents, go to agentsync.io, drop us a note, and we'd be glad to help you out. You know, on a personal level, I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter, just slash Robbie Allen on on both of those platforms. And, you know, try to poke my head up at times and and share things, but would love to, would love to connect. And yeah, Alex, I just want to say thanks to you too. I I love what you guys are doing at Doc and have admired from a distance kind of the journey you guys have been on. And I'm also a fan of the podcast. So I was flattered when you reached out and, and, and almost a little bit surprised and glad to have done this with you. So thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Robbie. That's a wrap on another episode of Grow and Tell. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform, or find every episode at growintelshow.com. I'm your host, Alex Krakow. Thank you for listening.